Chapter Twenty One of Gunsight Pass: How Oil Came to the Cattle Country and Brought a New West by William McLeod Rain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Holdup. To Sanders, working on Afternoon Tower at Jackpot Number Three, the lean, tan driller in charge of operations was wise with an uncanny knowledge the newcomer could not fathom. For eight hours at a stretch he stood on the platform and watched a greasy cable go slipping into the earth. Every quiver of it, every motion of the big walking beam, every kick of the engine told him what was taking place down that narrow pipe two thousand feet below the surface. He knew when the tools were in clay and had become gummed up. He could tell just when the drill had cut into hard rock at an acute angle and was running out of the perpendicular to follow the softer stratum. His judgment appeared infallible as to whether he ought to send down a reamer to straighten the kink. All Dave knew was that a string of tools far underground was jerking up and down monotonously. This spelt romance to Jed Burns, superintendent of operations, though he would never have admitted it. He was a bachelor, always would be one, hard-working, hard-drinking, at odd times a plunging gambler. He lived for nothing but oil and the atmosphere of oil fields. From one boom to another he drifted, as inevitably as the gamblers, grafters, and organizers of fake companies. Several times he had made fortunes, but it was impossible for him to stay rich. He was always ready to back a drilling proposition that looked promising, and no independent speculator can continue to wildcat without going broke. He was sifting sand through his fingers when Dave came on tower the day after the flood. To Bob Hart, present as Crawford's personal representative, he expressed an opinion. Right soon now or never, sand tastes, feels, looks, and smells like oil. But you can't ever be sure. An oil prospect is like a woman. She will or she won't. You never can tell which. Then, if she does, she's liable to change her mind. Dave sniffed the pleasing, pungent odor of the crude oil sands. His friend had told him that Crawford's fate hung in the balance. Unless oil flowed very soon in paying quantities, he was a ruined man. The control of the jackpot properties would probably pass into the hands of steelmen. The cattlemen would even lose the ranches which had been the substantial basis of his earlier prosperity. Everybody working on the jackpot felt the excitement as the drill began to sink into the oil-bearing sands. Most of the men owned stock in the company. Moreover, they were getting a bonus for their services and had been promised an extra one if number three struck oil in paying quantities before Steelman's crew did. Even to an outsider there is a fascination in an oil well. It is as absorbing to the drillers as a girl's mind is to her hopeful lover. Day found it impossible to escape the contagion of this. Moreover, he had ten thousand shares in the jackpot, stock turned over to him out of the treasury supply by the board of directors in recognition of services which they did not care to specify in the resolution which authorized the transfer. At first he had refused to accept this, but Bob Hart had put the matter to him in such a light that he changed his mind. The oil business pays big for expert advice, no matter whether it's legal or technical. What you did was worth fifty times what the board voted you. If we make a big strike, you've saved the company. If we don't, the stock's not worth a plug nickel anyhow. You've earned what we voted you. Hang on to it, Dave. 
Dave had thanked the board and put the stock in his pocket. Now he felt himself drawn into the drama represented by the thumping engine which continued day and night. After his shift was over, he rode to town with Bob behind his team of wild broncos. "'Gotta look for an engineer for the night tower,' Hart explained as he drew up in front of the Gusher saloon. "'Come in with me. It's some gambling hell, if you ask me.' The place hummed with the turbulent life that drifts to every wild frontier on the boom. Faro dealers from the Klondike, poker dealers from Nome, roulette croupiers from Leadville were all here to reap the rich harvest to be made from investors, field workers, and operators. Smooth grafters with stock and worthless companies for sale circulated in and out with blueprints and whispered inside information. The men who were ranged in front of the bar, behind which half a dozen attendants in white aprons busily waited on their wants, usually talked oil and nothing but oil. Today they had another theme. The same subject engrossed the group scattered here and there throughout the large hall. In the rear of the room were the faro layouts, the roulette wheels, and the poker players. Around each of these the shifting crowd surged. Mexicans, Chinese, and even Indians brushed shoulders with white men of many sorts and conditions. The white-faced professional gambler was in evidence, winning the money of big brown men in miners' boots and corduroys. The betting was wild and extravagant, for the spirit of the speculator had carried away the cool judgment of most of these men. They had seen a barber become a millionaire in a day, because the company in which he had plunged had struck a gusher. They had seen the same man borrow five dollars three months later to carry him over until he got a job. Riches were pouring out of the ground for the gambler who would take a chance. Thrift was a much discredited virtue in Malapi. The one unforgivable vice was to be a piker. Bob found his man at a faro table. While the cards were being shuffled, he engaged him to come out next evening to the jackpot properties. As soon as the dealer began to slide the cards out of the case, the attention of the engineer went back to his bets. While Dave was standing close to the wall, ready to leave as soon as Bob returned to him, he caught sight of an old acquaintance. Steve Russell was playing stud poker at a table a few feet from him. The cowpuncher looked up and waved his hand. "'See you in a minute, Dave,' he called, and as soon as the pot had been won, he said to the man shuffling the cards, "'Deal me out this hand.' He rose, stepped across to Sanders, and shook hands with a strong grip. "'You darned old son of a gun! I'm sure glad to see you. Heard you was back. Say, you certainly been going some.' Suits me, I never did like either Doug or Miller a whole lot. Doug's one sure enough bad man, and Miller's a tin-horn would-be. What you did to both of em was a plenty. But keep your eye peeled, old-timer. Miller's where he belongs again, but Doug's still on the range, and you can bet he's seeing red these days. He'll gun you if he gets half a chance. Yes, said Dave evenly. You don't figure to let yourself get caught again without a six-shooter. Steve put this statement with the rising inflection. No. That's right. Don't let him get the drop on you. He's sudden death with a gun. Bob joined him. After a moment's conversation, Russell drew them to a corner of the room that, for the moment, was almost deserted. Say, you heard the news, Bob? I could tell you that better after I know what it is, returned Hart with a grin. The stage was held up at Cottonwood Bend and robbed of $17,000. 
The driver was killed. When? This morning. They tried to keep it quiet, but it leaked out. Whose money was it? Brad Steelman's payroll and a shipment of gold for the bank. Any idea who did it? Steve showed embarrassment. Why, no, I ain't, if that's what you mean. Well, anybody else? That's what I want to tell you. Two men were in the job. They're whispering that M. Crawford was one. Crawford? Some of Steelman's fine work in that rumor, I bet. He's crazy if he thinks he can get away with that. That's plum foolish talk. What evidence does he claim? demanded Hart. M. deposited ten thousand with the First National to pay off a note he owed the bank. Rode into town right straight to the bank two hours after the stage got in. Then, too, seems one of the hold-ups called the other one Crawford. The plant, Dave said promptly. Looks like, Bob's voice was rich with sarcasm. I don't reckon the other one rose up his hind legs and said, I'm Bob Hart, did he? They claim the second man was Dave here. Hmm, what time you say this hold-up took place? Uh, must have been about eleven. Let's Dave out. He was fifteen miles away, and we can prove it by at least six witnesses. Good. I reckon M can put in an alibi, too. I'll bet he can, Hart promised this with conviction. Trouble is, they say they've got witnesses to show M was traveling toward the bend half an hour before the hold-up. Art Johnson and Clem Purdy met him while they was on their way to town. Was Crawford alone? He was then, yep. Anyone might have been there. You might. I might. That don't prove a thing. Hell, I know M. Crawford's not mixed up in any hold-up, let alone damned cowardly murder. You don't need to tell me that. Point is that evidence is piling up. Where did M. get the ten thousand to pay the bank? Two days ago he was trying to increase the loan the First National had made him. Dave spoke. I don't know where he got it, but unless he's a born fool, and nobody ever claimed that of Crawford, he wouldn't take the money straight to the bank after he had held up the stage and killed the driver. That's a strong point in his favor. If he can show where he got the ten thousand, amended Russell, and of course he can, and where he spent that two hours after the hold-up before he came to town, that'll have to be explained, too, said Bob. Oh, Em, he'll be able to explain that all right, decided Steve cheerfully. Where is Crawford now? asked Dave. He hasn't been arrested, has he? Not yet, but he's being watched. Soon as he showed up at the bank, the sheriff asked to look at his six-shooter. Two cartridges had been fired. One of the passengers on the stage told me two shots was fired from a six-gun by the boss hold-up. The second one killed old Tim Harrigan. Did they accuse Crawford of the killing? Not directly. He was asked to explain. I ain't heard what his story was. We better go to his house and talk with him, suggested Hart. Maybe he can give us as good an alibi as you, Dave. You and I will go straight there, decided Sanders. Steve, get three saddled horses. We'll ride out to the bend and see what we can learn on the ground. I'll cash my chips, get the Bronx, and meet you lads at Crawford's, said Russell promptly. End of chapter 21